yet another episode of the Coveted Brew Day podcast begins right now. I'm your host today, Toby Tucker. You know, one of the most common questions we get here at Country Malt Group from breweries is, when should I consider switching from bagged malt to bulk silo malt? Or, you know, does it make sense to transition to totes prior to jumping to silo? Or do I do both at the same time? Obviously a complex question, and we could spend all day talking about it, but really it boils down to return on investment and cash flow of that particular brewery. So I tell people a good rule of thumb is that a brewer should consider moving from bagged malt to bulk malt at around, say, 5,000 barrels a year. Why is this? Well, a couple of reasons. Silo installation and conveyance installation can be very expensive, as most of us know, and can swing wildly in price depending on the brewer's locale. On top of that, a standard 48,000-pound silo load purchased at once is a good chunk of change for brewers. Even at bulk pricing can certainly put a strain on business cash flow. You know, going back to the 5,000 barrel per year rule that I go by, at this rate of production, assuming, say, five to seven ABV craft beer production, the return on investment is give or take 18 months on a silo install based on what we commonly see in the market. The other thing to consider is there are limitations as to how long that malt can hang out in the silo. You know, in areas of high heat and humidity, the malt can degradate much faster than somewhere dry and cold. So generally, these silo turns need to be between three and four times a year. It's so many questions and so many considerations for brewers looking to make the leap. Our territory manager, a country malt group of the Northeast, Jeff Hughes, put together a really nice article on this subject called To Silo or Not to Silo. That is the question. I encourage all of our listeners to give it a read after the show today. You can find it on our website, countrymalt.com forward slash mashing dash in. And it will probably answer many questions you have that we cannot attack today, specifically speaking with our special subject matter guests. So enough of me talking. I'm going to hand it over to our very special guest today and uh, appreciate his time jumping on, Mr. Jack Paulson. Jack, how you doing? Good morning, Toby. Hey, I really appreciate you jumping on. We've been talking about getting you on the show for quite some time, so it is a welcome surprise, and I know your time is valuable. You're probably extremely busy right now. Just to give listeners a little bit of what Jack does, he's been around in this field for 34 years, specifically in malt handling for brewers, distilleries, and malting companies. So, Jack, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, you know, currently what you're up to. It's actually, uh, I've got more years behind me in uh, malt handling than I do in front of me. But more importantly, I've been kind of a specialist in storage, conveyance, milling, weighing systems. It's always interesting to hear from a Brewery's point of view, what their challenges are. There's a lot of real good questions when it comes into, you know, that transition from bagged or super sacked to silo. But, you know, I've spent most of my adult life working with silos, screw augers, and weighing systems. So it's no surprise to hear that breweries, distilleries need help. And first off, to understand the process. So. We get a lot of it, and Jack, we go back for quite some time, and you specifically do a lot of design and install work throughout North America as a reference for Country Malt Group, Canada Malting, Great Western. So you've seen a lot with us and seen a a lot of different customer base, and and honestly, you're probably responsible for a large chunk of uh, systems out there right now in North America. It's been a lot of fun. There's a lot of great people. 
I just can't believe the enthusiasm and the creative minds that are in this industry. And it's a pure joy to be a part of every every brewery when they jump from bag to super sack or super sack to silo. It's always a lot of fun. And it's very rare that we get a super challenging application, but every job is great. It's, it's nice at talking to and meeting new people. And uh, what I can say is the fact that, you know, these businesses are all competitors. They're still all good comrades. Uh, There's very, very uh, rare. Do you find somebody that that is uh, difficult or awkward? These guys are all outgoing. They're they're real forward. They're real happy. They're enthusiastic. And it sure makes it a lot of fun. It's been a great industry to be a part of. And I truly enjoy every phone call and every customer, whether it's a seven barrel brewery or, you know, a hundred barrel brewery. If I can share a story about how I got involved with the Country Malt at Canada Malting Group, it was, oh, about 2005. I was working with a, a young fella by the name of Matt Phillips in uh, Victoria, B.C. He had uh, just started a brewery. He was growing rapidly, and he reached out, and I was quite impressed with his attitude and his, his philosophy. And I jumped in my truck the next day and, and drove to Victoria and dang it, I would have given him the equipment at no charge just to be a part of his success story. And shortly after, I got a call from a fellow by the name of Don Moore, who's one of your colleagues, asked me if I was interested. And then a, another colleague of yours, uh, Matt Letke, reached out. We met in uh, Calgary, Alberta. They asked me if I would like to help them or assist them in piloting their customers, their customer base in storage conveyance and milling systems. And I jumped in with both feet. I, I couldn't wait to get involved with these guys. I love them, their enthusiasm, their the sparkle in their eye when they talk craft beer and distillation was just all that I needed to get involved. So it's it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. Both Don and Matt are still chugging along with us and, and still doing great work. So very good. Well, you're into fishing. So for lack of a better term, I'm just going to throw out the bait and get right to it. Let's start with Talking glossary of terms, pneumatic versus belly dump. What are they and what's the difference? Well, you know, when you're in that craft brewery or distillation size of, I'm going to say, even a 60 barrel or less, 99% of the time it's going to be pneumatic delivery. So you have a bulk truck that rolls into the yard. He's got a four inch soft line that connects to his truck and connects to your silo on the sidewall. He uses air to convey it to the tank. It goes into storage. If we talk about belly dump, that's a different scale of economy. The truck rolls in, is a tractor, has two trailers, and it'll hold between 42 and 44 U.S. tons. There's a gate on the bottom of these trailers, and we crack them manually, and we flood feed receiver in the ground or a portable, what we call pivot or swing away hopper, and then that will take it to storage. So I guess we need to differentiate at what point you look at that. <laughs> yeah. We see some belly dumps up out there, and I think you're right. Most of the larger craft, you know, that are doing very high volume certainly are kind of in the realm of the belly dump. But I think you're right. You know, 60 barrel production and less is generally taking silo fills by pneumatic truck either from a transload, which is a rail yard, which the malt house sends the malt to 
stay at and the, the pneumatic truck comes and is filled with malt there and then takes it to the brewery. But yeah, I think the larger breweries are certainly considering or currently using belly dump. One of the considerations when you are buying malt in that size, obviously your infrastructure, it takes a bigger footprint. We need to take uh, longer trucks. These trucks will be in the neighborhood of 70 feet in length. So you need the room to get this truck in and out. Often what they'll have to do is drop a trailer in order to accommodate the unloading process. And added to that, whenever we receive malt via a belly dump, it needs to be conveyed to a bucket elevator. And that bucket elevator will take the malt vertically and then using gravity to deposit it into the bin. Now, the size of the bin increases substantially. We go from typically 30-ton capacity to minimum 55 or 60-ton capacity. So your capital costs and your ROIs need to be reviewed when you're at that level. But I guess anybody at that level has already got pretty healthy cash flow. This just simplifies the process and eliminates bags. Yeah, that's the main goal when, well, I'll say main, but there's several considerations with people looking to transition away from, you know, 50, 55 pound bag. There's convenience, there's savings, but there's a lot of considerations, as mentioned earlier. You mentioned space. There's some craft breweries out there that just don't have the space to be able to put up a silo and or they have restrictions locally that prevent them from dropping a silo outside. And then again, as you mentioned, Jack, there's there are complications in, in some form or fashion where some people don't have the space to get a truck right up next to the silo. You know, some of those pneumatic trucks come with, you know, additional hoses. So, you know, they can fill up to you know, 50, 60 feet away, but you're putting a little bit more pressure on the malt to try to get it in your silo. And that's kind of when we suggest brewers really taking a look if they want to make some sort of transition to volume, it really looking into going the tote route. Most vendors that I know of have a pretty substantial savings in cost of the product from bag to tote. And obviously it's a less of a footprint. However, they're still going to need conveyance. And there's obviously a lot of people that kind of go in one fail swoop and put in, you know, a silo and at the same time throw in a tote handling system for their specialty. So, you know, there's so many different uh, applications and so many different layouts, but that's why I'm glad people have people like you to talk to. Jack, what size silo do you tend to recommend knowing a standard load on a pneumatic truck is give or take 48,000 pounds? Are larger silos that much more then smaller sizes, pros and cons. What do you see on your end? What do you suggest? Well, most of the times these breweries are located in pretty accessible territories, you know, for your trucks, for your uh, delivery systems. So what I see is uh, lead times of usually three or four or five days at a maximum. So what we always try to do is uh, push the customer into at least 25% increased added capacity on top of the delivery. So, for instance, if you're at 24 U.S. ton deliveries, we want to add 25% to that number and get them into 30 ton minimum capacity. This way, you know, yeah, he'll get the first load in and he'll enjoy the push button automation on the second load. He can look at it and say, you know, I'm ready for a delivery. I've got five or six tons left in my hopper. I'm good for, you know, four or five days of brewing. And that 24-ton delivery can come in. The truck can fill them up and leave empty. Often there's a mistake made when 
breweries don't consult somebody that's actually in the know. Oh, I I get 24 ton delivery, so I need a 24 ton bin. And I've seen it. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, what happens is they have to wait till that tank is completely exhausted, not a drop left in it, so he can put that 24 tons in it. And they may sit on their hands for three or four days waiting for malt to come. So it interrupts production. When it comes to the cost of the bin, adding two or three feet of sidewall height is the least expensive investment that you can make. You can only imagine a structure that size. The cost involved in a silo build is the hopper, the legs, the bracing, and the roof. Sidewall material might only cost you six and seven hundred dollars per elevated foot. So I always try to push people into that 30 minimum. And if I can see these guys are in a maybe a remote location and uh, malt is a week that 10 days out, which I, I don't see that maybe in northern BC or even in Alaska, you'll see longer lead times. I push guys into larger bins so they can keep production going and not worry about the truck leaving with two or three tons of malt in it that you've paid for. Yeah, and one thing to mention, too, is the trucking side of the delivery from, you know, someone like Great Western Malting Canada Malting, that trucking cost in pneumatic truck is the same whether they're bringing out seven tons or they're bringing out, you know, 21 or 22 or 23 metric tons. The truck doesn't charge you by how much they got in the truck. So keep that in mind. If you install a smaller silo or you're piggybacking with somebody else, the cost of that malt is definitely going to be higher than if you can take a full load. Jack, when you're recommending silos, is there a difference between the product that's in that silo? So you mentioned, you know, 30 ton. Is that on barley malt? Is it different for wheat? Is it different for rye based on, you know, the weight of the product in the silo? Absolutely. Great question. You know, in, in our work with breweries, we always talk about the cubic capacity of the bin. And just to back up slightly, the magic number is 1,850 cubic feet for malted barley, whole malted barley. That is based on 34 pounds per cubic foot. If the customer tells me he's going to store rye, it's more dense. So, you know, that weight actually goes up to 37 or 38 pounds per cubic foot. And if it's wheat, then it goes to 40 pounds per cubic foot. So we always want to discuss what the commodities are that the customer wants to store. We do have customers that put multiple silos in for multiple commodities. And at that point, it's got to be really clear what they're going to use and how much of it they're going to buy. So in that respect, yeah. One of the things that we do is we commonly use a 12-foot diameter bin that is 26 feet tall. Our cones are 55 degree, and that's a magic number because that cone holds six U.S. tons. So if we have a silo that holds 30 U.S. tons, and our cone is six tons, we know that we can take a 24-ton delivery on top of that cone when it's full. So I put sidewall view glasses right at the eave of the bin so the brewer can look at it and go, hey, we're down to that window, pick up the phone and order. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of a visual tool, and it's very, very inexpensive. Yeah, that's a great idea. Can you walk us through the different types of silos you commonly see at craft breweries? You know, we see some cheaper corrugated types. You know, I've seen people using, you know, stuff out of uh, dairy farms. 
What are some pros and cons of each that you can provide to our listeners? Well, the most important thing, I guess, is is everybody has a budget in mind. It doesn't always follow with what I call a, a good practice. Corrugated bins, there are some pros. The cost is the lowest. The ability to ship it is low. And it's often liked for its farm style appearance. It gets rusted up. It gets, you know, kind of beat up. And people kind of like that retro look. It's not always the best for malt. One of the other considerations when you do buy a corrugated bin or what we call a farm style bin or also known as a bolt up corrugated bin, the pneumatic filling systems are very substandard. And most of the times there's not a lot of thought or consideration into the design. They lack uh, long radius bends so that malt is actually getting damaged as it's entering the top of the bin. And then second, the filtration systems or the venting systems on them are weak. And probably the, the most important thing is, is the cost of assembly. It often gets overlooked. So now you get a 1800 or an 1850 cubic foot bin delivered to your brewery. Someone has to put this thing together and it has to be done right. And if it's not done right, you're going to have leaks. You're going to have water ingress. You know, snow is going to sit down there or. And probably the other most important thing is when you're in a municipality or a city or whatever jurisdiction you're in, it might not meet the building code. It may for farmers out in the middle of a, a field or at a chicken coop, but it won't meet the building code. Commercial businesses need to understand that there's a seismic code, and that seismic code lends us to understand what wind, snow, an earthquake can do to that vessel when it's challenged. All good comments there. You know, you also consider with the lack of, you know, complete sealing of some of these corrugated or, you know, your local welder who doesn't have a whole lot of experience standing these things up right or, or putting them together. It always lends the potential of infestation of bugs as well. And, you know, once you get hit by infestation, there's a lot of problems that you're going to have, not just you know, obviously in, in the malt there, it's uh, completely unusable at some point is potentially bringing that into the rest of your brew house. Yeah. So, Jack, and this is not one of the questions I sent over to you, so feel free to pass on this one. But just thinking about it, we have, you know, obviously some brewers that are not in major municipalities that are in kind of smaller neck of the woods. And some of these cities or counties or municipalities, as you suggested, have never dealt with or it might be the first silo from a brewery they've ever seen as far as the request to get these stood up is that something like someone like yourself would assist with where they need some support in explaining to some of these cities hey here's what a silo is here's what it does here's what i need from you guys to kind of answer some of those questions yeah that's pretty common it's a hand-holding process to you know to get these guys operational into bulk whether it's, you know, the cities will often ask, oh, geez, you know, how big is it? What color is it? You know, where are you going to put it? You know, you have to engage with either an architect. You know, a lot of times breweries now are using architects to develop an image. And uh, what color is it? Well, we don't want white because it jumps out. And, you know, do you have other color options? And and then you'll get into the actual permitting side of it, and they'll be asking, well, you know, like, we get 90-mile-an-hour winds here. Is it going to stand up to that? And we have all the support documentation for our builds when it comes to smooth-walled welded bins. 
And that's why we smooth wall bins are the most desired. We look at the location by zip code. Everything is, is managed by the zip code. Zip code tells us where you're at, what forces of nature you're dealing with there. And we build that tank according to that jurisdiction uh, to meet the jurisdiction and the building code so that you've got a piece of paper in your hand that says, I'm good for 110 miles per hour. I can take snow loads of 60 pounds per square foot on my roof. And I'm good for, you know, one in 10 or a one in 20 earthquake event. So, you know, the other thing is a lot of places are going to require uh, drawings or designs from a structural engineer. Maybe think about how much weight you'll have, not only with the, the silo itself, but, you know, the 22, 23, 24 ton that's, that's in there when it's full. So I didn't even know this until I was looking over some notes today, but is there a food grade epoxy that some folks put on the inside walls of these smooth silos? Yes. Good question. First off, that is standard on our bins. Is it? Okay. We use a powder coated epoxy paint, which lends to a, what I call a hundred percent clean out. As opposed to a corrugation, which has got, well, I believe it's like a 2.6 inch ripple. The corrugations tend to hold up dust and not allow the bin to clean out properly. So there's going to be uh, one or two or three times a year where you get a large flush of dust into your, your brew. And that'll cause you some pretty serious problems. When people do go corrugated, I encourage them to at least evacuate the bin completely once or twice a year, either blow it down or wash it down, which is a pretty big task. You know, you've already got enough work on your hands in the brewery, packaging, brewing, warehousing, and then to take that on is it's just daunting because you have to drop your discharge equipment, you have to don anti-fall protection, get somebody up on top of the bin to do this. And they really don't get it until they have that problem. So corrugated bins are designed for livestock operations. They just flat out aren't designed for distillation or craft brewing. With a smooth-walled bin like what we provide, we're epoxy-coated, smooth-walled. Welds are ground so that uh, we don't get any buildup. When the tank is uh, discharging, we get a clean flow. We get vertical shear drop of all the inventory so we don't recycle used malt that's been hanging out in there and just keeps in there for batch after batch after batch or delivery. So in that respect, it truly is the best option for a brewery. And I know the capital cost is higher, but you know it's rewarding to, to pull up to your facility and see that bin there. It, it stands bold, it's strong, it's clean. It can be used for more than just storage. You can put your logos on it. You have many breweries that put wraps on these. I encourage people to think about that, that custom colors that match your brewery marketing strategies. You can uplight, you can downlight, you can use it as a landmark. So some really good positive things about smooth walled bins and your ability to use them in more as more than just storage. Now, going back in, maybe we didn't spend enough time on it, but you mentioned obviously, you know, several times a year, completely emptying that silo. I think it's definitely worth mentioning that there's several reasons for that, but tell me a little bit about 
what happens, you know, towards the end of that silo fill, specifically with chaff and kind of, you know, I've gotten calls where people, you know, got their first silo stood up. They're going through their first load. They've got, you know, five ton left and they call me like there's something wrong with the malt, you know. So can you tell us kind of what happens there specifically with the cone and and why it's important to uh, completely empty those silos? Well, Toby, when we have uh, pneumatic deliveries, we're using air to push the malt. You know, it weighs 34 or 35 pounds per cubic foot. Your delivery truck can sit on your driveway for for a minimum two hours and up to three hours, depending on the distance between the truck and the silo. We're pushing it vertically. The air is being uh, controlled to the center of the bin. It's not a surprise that you're going to get separation. That separation is natural. You'll get a small amount of dust. You'll get a small amount of chafe. And eventually what happens is, well, the the natural progress would be for the solids to fall straight down, the chafe to go to the outside of the bin because it's light and it's airborne. So eventually what will happen is when we are emptying a bin completely, you will find small amounts of chafe and dust that slide down the sidewall vertically. And then when it gets to the cone, this inventory collides and you might get, you know, a couple pounds. You might get maybe a little bit more. It really depends on the delivery, which I think is one of the most important things. The longer that the truck sits there to deliver, the greater the quality of malt. And there are times where drivers are forced to to push real hard and get out of the way because maybe the nature of the the complex that you're in or the distance. So you can experience that. I don't see it a whole lot. Again, I encourage breweries to empty those bins at least uh, once or twice a year. I know breweries that never do it. They've never touched it, never look at it, never consider it, and they don't have any complaints. So I guess from a brewer aspect, it really depends on how discerning they are, I guess. Yeah. Well, another thing, too, that, you know, you mentioned the pneumatic truck, the length from the truck to the silo. But it's also important to know about the speed, right? The PSIs, you know, that they're working with from truck to silo. And some brewers are pretty adamant about a certain speed they expect for the truck to unload that malt. There's usually pretty standard PSIs, and then that that obviously can vary. But, you know, the people that are delivering silo malt for us have been doing it a long, long time, and they're they're a great resource to kind of help those brewers get a handle on kind of what that target PSI is. But yeah, if they're sitting there too long, there's going to be issues. If they're not there long enough, there's going to be issues. Yeah. It's a careful balance. But I think in technical terms, you know, four and a half or five PSI is about standard. Is that what you think is normal, Toby? Yep. Yep. I would agree. agree. One of the things that's important when you are pneumatically conveying at that pressure, that is the sweet spot. That is an ideal situation where the malt is being conveyed. It is the least amount of damage. We can't emphasize enough how important it is to design your filling system on your silo. Long radius elbows, we want to avoid shear points. Any point where the malt will collide into sharp or projections in the pipe or transitions from elbows to straight or where couplings are located. Probably the most important thing to consider when you're uh, receiving pneumatic malt is make sure you design your silo with what we call a PRV. So it's a pressure reducing valve. In the event 
that your sidewall vent with its filter on it hasn't been managed, hasn't been looked after, or has an obstruction in it, we could technically blow the bin up. Even the four and a half pounds does not sound like a lot. You could implode the bin. So it's primary to have a PRV in the top of your bin so that it will relieve the air. And your your truck driver will probably find out real quick uh, that there is an obstruction or a blockage. And it can be really simple. It could be that the, the filter hasn't been removed and it's collected fines over a course of a year and it just can't take anymore and relieve the air. So to avoid catastrophic uh, failure, <laughs> it's only happened twice in my, I guess, over 40 years now that I've seen it happen. One was in a sugar in a bakery with fine sugar because it's so hydrosopic. So and another one was malt. Somebody stuffed a wet rag up a vent. They were thinking to keep out rodents or birds. And the rag froze overnight. And when it took the delivery, the, the, the top of the bin blew off. <laughs> I think you and I might. But yeah, I know about, I don't know if that's the specific one, but I experienced something very similar with that rag in the past like two months. So yeah, you got to be careful with them for sure. You know, you mentioned the sight glass. We've seen brewers trying to track their silo either visually or just with a, honestly, a pen and a paper. Like, I, you know, I, okay, this batch I used. You know, two ton, you know, I got a full load last week and they just try to do the math and figure out, you know, how much they have still in their, in their silo. A lot of times we go out to put silo or malt in that silo and it, it overflows or the truck still has six ton left in it. And, you know, it can be problematic. What are your recommendations here? Well, that's a really good point. The deductive method of inventory management is great until it fails. So I standardly put on our, what we call our standard malt bin, which is 12 foot diameter, 26 feet tall. We've got 12 feet of sidewall. I put five windows in there and those five windows are a great visual. We make sure that they uh, are, can be seen from the back door at the brew house or, you know, wherever you locate it so that it, it's actually Every time you walk by, you can look up and see it. The windows are fantastic. They're about five inches diameter. They're made from Lexan glass. They're gasketed with a stainless steel ring, and they're sealed. They can actually hold liquid. And as I said earlier, we like to put the first ring right at the edge of the hopper cone and the sidewall, because I know that that gives me six tons. And I can actually give you uh, and calibrate the uh, bin for you, showing you for every vertical foot up the sidewall what tonnage that is so that you can mentally keep track. That's one good way. It's usually the most economical way, and people have adjusted to that quite well. If your budget allows you, there are other options. Load cells are an industry standard in all kinds of processes for inventory management. In this case, they tend to be a bit expensive. If you can only imagine, you've got 48,000 pounds of malt. You've got a vessel that weighs uh, near 5,000 pounds. So now you're at, you know, 53 or 55,000 pounds of, of equipment. That load cell needs to be quite robust. And often we have to change the design of the bin from a six-leg bin to a four-leg bin to accommodate that. There's no extra cost for that, but it needs to be considered. We don't put six load cells on a bin. Because they are, you know, your nine to ten thousand dollars 
for load cells on a bin that size. Wow. And that would give you your digital readout or controlling. The other method that we have been using the last few years is radars. They're quite inexpensive. So we roof mount them. We input the data on the software that shows the diameter of the bin, the slope of the uh, cone, the height of the cone, and the overall height of the bin. And it it can actually self-calibrate. So we know that we got either by cubic feet or cubic meters or bushels. We can also input our density, so pounds per cubic foot. So we actually get a reading that says, hey, I got, you know, 14,378 pounds in the bin. I've got you know, 34% void, which means I'm, you know, two-thirds full. It's great. It's iCloud-based. You can monitor it from your iPhone or your or an Android or an office-based PC. We can also set it up so that you do auto-reordering, so you don't even pay attention. So it's cloud-based to the Country Malt Group or the Canada Malting Group. So they'll get an email from our system that says, hey, send me another 48,000 pounds. Damn, that's cool. It's really fantastic. This technology is, is super cool, and it's very inexpensive. When I say very inexpensive, it's about the third the cost of load cells. I've been to job sites where I've watched accountants with a handful of gravel throwing it up against the sidewall of the bin, waiting for the sound change to say, hey, no, really? Third full. I'm half full. <laughs> You're kidding and me. I stood there with my jaw you know, all slacked going, what are you doing? Oh, oh I'm just checking stock. So I know when to reorder. <laughs> that's pretty funny, but I think, and I've done this before. I think the, it's kind of like the common dude that's looking for a stud, you know, behind their drywall, they do the <laughs> knock technique, you know, like, so, yeah, we've all done it. We've all done it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's bounce over to malt conveyance systems. What are the different types? You know, there's chain disc, there's auger, Give me some pros and cons of each, and what do you personally recommend and why? Well, again, Toby, this is a budget, uh, something that you need to keep in mind. Uh, Obviously, you know, malt conveyance, malt storage, malt handling, malt milling is one of those things that's left last. You know, they've looked at every aspect of the brewery between chillers and and boilers and and, uh, keg washing lines and packaging and and racking and, you know, they've got everything all sussed right out perfectly. But then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and jeepers, what about my mail? How am I going to, where am I going to put that? And, you know, I got to get it out of the way because I know it generates a bit of dust. You know, flex augers are probably your most economical way to manage that. There's many sizes that will accommodate every scale of, of production. My focus is always to steer them into a little larger auger than what they need today because they're going to need more capacity, you know, further down the road, whether it's a year or two years, uh, four years or five years. So just to describe flex augers, it is a coreless spring inside of either a PVC or a steel, hardened steel tube. And they can climb, you know, vertically, not recommended in, in breweries, livestock, sure, and just to confirm, flex augers are really designed for agricultural uses, cattle, chickens, hogs. But they've really, really taken a, a strong hold in the, the brewing industry. So there's some things that we want to manage when we use them. One, they're very inexpensive and they're easy to install. Avoid vertical climbs. Limit them to 50 degrees. You know, 45 is a sweet spot. 30 is even better. 
but just limit your your vertical climbs because as you increase your angle you'll get more degradation so the big consideration is is let's put the mill where it works best for access with uh, pallet jacks skids of malt and what works best for the flex auger but in terms of flex auger sizing there's two inch there's three inch there's three and a half inch and there's five inch and what we see mostly and what i sell mostly through our brew house manufacturers is a three and a half inch system and that has a nominal delivery rate of 100 pounds of whole barley per minute. So it's very economical. The most important thing about flex augers is making sure that you've got a good charge on them. What I say by a good charge, if you took a cross section of the uh, tubing, we want to see that tube about 75 or 80 percent full. That's the point where we have eliminated almost 99% of the degradation. I mean, you might end up with 1%. It's very hard to measure, but we know that at 75 or 80% charge, the screw is actually floating inside of the tube. It's not beating against the side walls and pinching and shearing and damaging the, the barley. And that's the most important thing. So I always encourage to flood feed the auger and performance match the screw to whatever your process is by using a variable frequency drive. If you can only imagine a situation where a fellow has a, a slide gate either from the mill or from the silo that you are choke feeding and you've got a screw that's rotating at 350 RPM or 358 RPM, what happens to that malt if that screw is not completely charged? You might as well just eliminate the mill and send it straight to your grist case or straight into hydration. So by slowing the screw down, we are actually encouraging a more gentle handling, less shearing, less degradation. And, you know, we're not running the, the screw. You know, why run it at 358 when 200 RPM will do it? You'll actually hear it when you're operating it. The screw will settle down. There'll be less vibration. It'll really quiet down. And there's many benefits. One, we eliminate degradation. Two, we eliminate the wear in either the PVC tube or in the steel tubing itself. And it's a lot quieter. All right. So let, let's talk chain discs. You know, we talked a lot about the flex and some different uh, different options here, but I, I see a lot of chain discs in, in the market here. Yeah. Uh, chain discs have really uh, found a, a good home in breweries and in distillation. If we just reflect back on what flex augers do, they're very complicated in the way we manage them. We want to avoid degradation. And the nice thing about a chain disc system is, is that no matter whether we're dealing with whole barley or grist, it's always gentle. And it's a fantastic mechanical method. The dragging at a relatively low speed preserves the integrity. And, you know, we have unlimited capacity of, you know, starting at about uh, 50 pounds per minute and all the way up. There's no limit. I mean, we have right up to a 12-inch system, so very large capacity. The cons of a change system is the cost. I mean, you really got to validate whether it's one of those things that you really got your heart set on. And they're not that easily installed. They're a little more complex than a flex auger. So you really have to plan your routing, uh, understand uh, the mechanical limitations with 90 degree elbows. If we look at the pros, man alive, they're just gentle. We can go horizontal, vertical. We can change planes on a dime. Usually within about 20 inches, we can go from a horizontal plane to a vertical plane. 
Some of the cool things that we can do with them is we can install clear sections of tubing. So 20 feet before the brew house and 20 feet after, we can actually see the, the grist coming into our grist case or to our hydrator. And we can see the chain exiting empty. We've actually put them right through tasting rooms. So people are sitting in the tasting room enjoying a, a nice beverage and watching the tain, chain disc uh, make laps through the, the tasting room and back out to, to the brew house. And uh, that's always entertaining. You know, it, it, it adds a little more to the budget, but we're not talking about a lot of money, uh, you know, to add 60 or 70 or 80 feet to a system. And low maintenance, uh, Toby, that's important to understand. These things are set up under tension. They've got uh, spring-loaded uh, sprockets that drive it. And we've got electrical limit switches. So for any reason, there's a failure, the system shuts off. But I can't recall ever having to go back and service a changes system after it's been installed. And we've done many of them over the last 10 years. So real good product. And now these guys are, are getting the hang of it, what's important. So the mechanical corners, uh, they've got inspection doors on them so you can lubricate them or, you know, run a vacuum cleaner through them. You will get a small amount of dust up in there that collects, but for the most part, it's non-consequential. So yeah, the chain discs are fantastic. We enjoy them. Uh, you know, they're not for everybody. You know, if you've only got to go uh, 30 or 40 feet from your mill to your grist case or to a tree hopper, you know, count on spending uh, seven or $8,000. No, they're both very good options on conveyance. Good info. It's been done before, but not a lot of people recommend it. But I want to get your opinion. Should silos have a grist case? What are your recommendations here? You know, that's a real good question. For me, I prefer a grist case because really guys that are into the silo size volumes of production, they're looking to compact their brewing processes, you know, from a typical two brews a day to as many as five or six brews per day. And to do that, we utilize our time when the brew house is in a rest, you know, whether it's a 60-minute rest or a 90-minute rest. That allows us to pre-charge in-house hoppers. This can be done many, many different ways. We can convey to a pre-hopper, so pre-mill. And what I like to do is actually put a hopper over top of my mill. So I've got a full base malt grain bill sitting in a hopper over top of my mill. What we like to do is get that pre-hopper charged with a full grain bill of base malt while the other brew is already in the tank resting. So this way, the second these guys have completed their clean out, they just literally start their mill, pull the slide plate on the pre-hopper, and we're going again. That really helps us compress our brewing schedule, and we're not standing around waiting for augers to deliver. The other part of that is we can actually run our base malt from our silo through our mill, and we can go to a grist case. Well, that grist case can be charged again while we're in a resting stage in the brew house. So again, it just accelerates the whole process. You know, when you've got manpower standing around waiting or, you know, twiddling their thumbs. I know there's always lots to do, but it's always an excuse to find a place to, to rest and hang out while augers deliver. So yeah, pre-hoppers are always a great asset. And whether you call it a pre-hopper, a post-hopper, or a grist case, always give that the consideration. And keeping in mind that we need to weigh somewhere in this process. We need to weigh between the silo and our hydrator. How are we going to do that? What's the best? And there's some pros and cons on that. If we decide that we want to put load cells on our silo, that's great. Capital cost is, like I said earlier, nine or $10,000. 
There's some benefits to that, but there's also some disadvantages. Talk about the benefits. You've got a visual digital display of your current inventory at any minute of any day. When you're dosing off of your silo, you're going to give up some accuracy. And the accuracy is typically one-tenth of one percent. When you say dosing off your silo, is it, what do you mean like, you know, adding specialty malt? What I mean no. dosing is it's a subtractive method of taking inventory out of that bin. I got you. So, you know, the load cells are signaling to a controller that I'm going to pull out, you know, 1,700 pounds of malt. That 1,700 pounds is gets kind of blurred when you've got 48,000 pounds plus the weight of your vessel. So, yeah, so you're going to give up. And really, the, at the end of the day, as long as your brewer is hitting his gravity, see, he's happy. So he can adjust his recipes accordingly. But where we find the, the biggest benefit is if these load cells are installed either on a pre-hopper, post-hopper, or on a grist case. One, we're dealing with less weight. We're actually dealing with the weight of the grain bill and not the vessel and the rest of the inventory. So our accuracy can be within a pound or a, even a, a couple of pounds. Your cost goes down substantially by almost half. But what I do like to see is I like to see my load cells on my grist case. More often, you'll see three-legged grist cases over four-legged grist cases. And three-legged grist cases, obviously, is going to be cheaper because you're using less hardware to do your measurement, but it's more accurate. Three legs is more accurate than four legs. Try to encourage that. Yeah, absolutely. There's probably customers or brewers that you talk to that are pretty adamant about going to a silo, and we get it too. There are situations where we ask them to take a step back and talk to them about this may not be the right time as far as, you know, what you're doing as far as production. You know, let's take a look at going the tote handling route. If and when you get to the point where it makes a bit more sense financially and production-wise, we can always come back and, and take a look and, and tie in that silo and, and utilize the tote handling in line for your specialties. You have that conversation quite a bit with folks? Oh, yeah. We started fielding inquiries for what we call totes, are also known as super sacks, 10, 12, 15 years ago. It's always been a, a conversation that every brewer wants to have because they can see a saving. Anytime you can get away from bags and get into a larger bulk uh, volume, you know, there's immediate savings. The brewer needs to understand that there are costs associated with that. One, you need a, a frame to support the sack. You need a discharge method. So either it's going to be a chain disc or it's going to be a flex auger. We still need a weighing system. So those are considerations that, you know, everybody has to make what's right for them. Years ago, I had customers that were using multiple specialty malts and they wanted to swing over to super sacks. We did something that was very interesting. We uh, developed what we call a, a load cell table that held three, four, five, six super sacks simultaneously. And we could actually recipe drive the opening and closing of the valves on each super sack to dose in our specialties. The savings are quite good. Your expense is maybe a little higher, but when you're in that scale of production, it eliminates human error. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. So super sacks are great. Again, you know, you need to have additional racking to support your inventory. It needs to be matted so that you don't run out in the middle of a brew. And, you know, there's lots of different advantages to it. 
I think the savings are higher to go bulk as in yeah. silo. Yeah. I think a lot of times I tend to see a, a bit of a shock when people go, oh, I just want to buy super sacks. And then you say, well, okay, your load frame is going to cost you $5,000 and the conveyance is going to cost you uh, $2,000. Well, they're in it for $7,000 just for a single sack. Yeah, that's certainly something you got to look at. You know, we talk about return on investment. You know, how long is it going to take to recoup that money you put into it based on the savings from the actual material from bag to tote? You know, one of the cool things that that we do at Country Mall Group is we offer custom blended recipe totes. So if somebody wanted to go that route and, you know, like, hey, I, I want to take advantage of some savings, I'm going to put in the rack, you just let us know, here's what my recipe is, and we will blend it so you don't have to do anything else. So it's a pretty cool offering that we have. I understand that you actually mill, mill for your end user as well. Yeah, we do both. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Whatever fantastic. they need. That's fantastic. I have actually supplied super sack discharging frames for customers like that. You know, there's a number of advantages for them. As one, they don't have to worry about milling. They're trusting you to bring them a, a high quality finished product. And it's just a matter of getting dispensing off that super sack frame straight to a grist case or a hydrator. And, and you know, that's extremely attractive. Yeah, there's some municipalities that either because of space or, you know, dust, whatever, there's sometimes they just, they can't have a, a mill on site and you know, we can de uh, definitely assist with that. Jack, what's a good realistic time frame for planning purposes of implementing a new silo from start to finish? I'm sure it depends on the application size, you know, how many, but what's a general timeline for a typical crap brewer? You know, most of the times I, I get inquiries that, Start a year out, you know, and the what's important is to, to formulate yourself a budget for storage, conveyance, weighing, getting a good handle on the space requirements, you know, plan your location for the silo, plan the integration of lighting or uplighting or downlighting, engage with a structural engineer so that you, you're fully aware what your responsibilities are, find yourself a good contractor. Get yourself a competent electrician that can integrate the mechanical conveying and weighing systems. So a year is about normal. And I would say that nine out of 10 times a year is fantastic. We've had opportunities where, you know, this has been compressed into four months and we absolutely have no problems doing it. To have the silo manufactured and ready for shipping is all within 90 days. And we've done them as quick as 30 days. So there's, there's not very many limitations other than making sure that you've done your due diligence on your side, making sure that, you know, if you are going to go the permitting route, be prepared to engage with your city, municipal or county authorities to fulfill their requirements. And we assist you in that, so whatever it takes, whether it's drawings or understanding how the bin was seismically designed for wind, snow or earthquake. You know, California is different than Denver and Denver is different than North Carolina. So these are things to consider. But conveyance systems are off the shelf. Weighing systems are off the shelf. So the biggest component, which and usually which is the most important, is your silo and your municipal regulators to make sure that you're, you're doing the right thing, making good decisions and allows you to move forward. This is a lot of information we're, we're chatting with people, and probably one of the questions that comes to mind right off the bat is how much does a typical silo install cost? 
I know, again, there's a lot of different applications, a lot is involved, but for, let's say, the the 5,000 barrel a year production brewery looking to get into a silo, what's a general rule of thumb as far as cost on these things? Forty-five to 50,000 U.S. dollars would be a strong number. That would give you storage, conveyance, and a weighing system. And obviously, we can build the budget higher if you're looking for more bells and whistles. But forty-five dollars or $50,000 is very typical. The only variance would be transportation. We have five manufacturing plants in North America, four of them in Canada and one in Storm Lake, Iowa. So we service the Western U.S. and Canadian West via those plants. So freight, I mean, we've got a large vessel with a double drop trailer. We've got pilot vehicles. We've got permitting. And we actually have to select a route from our plant to your location where we don't have overhead conditions that obstruct us. So you might think, yeah, it's just 450 miles, but it might take us 700 to get there to avoid all the overhead obstructions. So those costs can vary. You know, we've got freight that would only cost you maybe $1,000. Sometimes it costs you $5,000. So, Yeah, and it seems today everything on the freight side is expensive. I mean, it just it is a lot of struggles. Yes. Oh, good. I know you've done some very large projects, been involved in some very hefty projects, if you will. Tell me about the coolest malt handling setup that you've ever worked on or, or you've seen personally. Well, you know, the coolest systems is when you get to use every single tool in the toolbox. So storage, multiple conveyance methods, super sack discharges on load cell tables, chain disc, flex auger, grains in and grains out. And I've been involved in projects all across the U.S., you know, 50, 60 barrel, 100 barrel, across Canada for all the big guys. And I got to say, the, the my most recent project that I enjoyed the most was in Victoria, British Columbia, for Driftwood Breweries. This was a nice opportunity for us to show all of our skills. The customer was outgrown. His current facility was taken on a 70,000 square foot building, wanted to increase his storage capacity, wanted to receive B trains. So we put in twin 55 ton silos, 65 foot bucket elevator. We put in the receiving for the B trains. So what we call a pivot, it swings underneath the truck. We convey vertically into storage. We used radars for inventory management. We used the flex augers to get them whole malt into the building. We transitioned the chain disc because the overhead obstacles were far too complex for a flex auger to manage. So that was executed at a pretty high level, on budget, on time. And then we supported the brewery with their grains out. We provided all of the piping from their existing Pondorf, routed it out to storage. 1,600 cubic foot stainless steel spent grain bin on extended legs, 10-inch stainless screw to fill out farmers' trucks and other end users for spent grains, all the automation, all the electrical components that start and stop and speed control, all of the apparatus. It was just fantastic, just a really exciting project. And since then, you know, we've got inquiries very similar, but not to the scale, only because of this job. It's such a high profile installation. 
a lot of fun. Great people, great beers. Yes, I've heard about that project and, you know, have a chat with those guys over at Driftwood specifically about that project and kind of more of a brewer's perspective on on silos and systems, et cetera. So Jack, I might lean on you to have you make that happen at some point. Yeah. I do most of these recordings on Friday and every time I start getting thirsty, we, you know, obviously talking about anything and everything, adult beverages. What are you enjoying these days as far as adult beverages? Well, Toby, one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, here he goes. Yes. <laughs> and, and let's keep in mind, you're in a different time zone, like two hours earlier than me. So it is still breakfast. That's right. And uh, <laughs> I've been a huge fan of the Driftwood Brewery's Bat Tug. This, this brew is just simply one of the best beers that I've ever had. And when it comes to... The hop, the IBUs, it's just delicious. It's just simply delicious. And I'm a big fan. In fact, if, you know, but it's a, it's a Northwest style India pale ale with intense hop profile featuring Cascade, Columbus, Centennial, Amarillo, and Citra. Citra being one of my favorite hops. And it's juicy between the grapefruit and the mango and the melon and the passion fruit. It comes in just around 7% and 80-plus IBUs. It is just super refreshing, and it's my go-to Friday beer. And frankly, anytime I can drink one of these, I'm the happiest guy in the world. But you talked about fishing early. If I had my choice, I would put that name on my boat, Bat Tug. It's nice to say. <laughs> it's nice to say, and it's better to drink. Oh, I wonder if you have to get permission from those guys over there. I might That's have to. Man. Yeah. Well, screw it. I'm going to get a beer. Thank you for, for <laughs> contributing to my addiction over here, Jack. Hey, so Jack, do you want to give the listeners some info on how to get a hold of you? You know, like the folks at Country Malt Group, generally our, our sales team, most everybody's worked with it at some point. Same with the guys and girls over at Canada Malting and then Great Western Malting as well. So we've always got your contact info and folks can certainly reach out to our sales folks for that. But you want to give out give that out to the folks that might want to reach out and contact you directly? Fantastic. Yeah, currently I'm in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. It's a great place on the West Coast. We enjoy the salt air and obviously the bounties of that. I'm with a company called New Leaf Equipment Solutions. I'm the senior technical brewing advisor, and my phone number is 604-355-7681. And I answer my phone seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and help people out wherever I can. I just love hearing from all walks of life and every brewery in between. So always I I can attest to that. You always answer the phone. Yeah. Always been good to us. Hey, it's been a, a really fantastic show and really some great information. And again, we can we can probably go on and on talking about this stuff. But I, I will again let the listeners know Jeff Hughes, our Northeast Territory Manager with Country Malt Group, put together a really nice kind of beefy article, if you will, on this subject that goes into a little bit more detail. It's called To Silo or Not to Silo. Again, you can find that on our website at countrymalt.com. So I encourage folks to read that if they haven't. And he's a knowledgeable dude as well and would certainly feel some questions. So, Jack, hey, I appreciate your time today. And I hope you have a fantastic weekend. And hopefully we can catch up sooner rather than later. Always a pleasure, Toby. Thanks for having me. No problem. Hey, thanks again to all of our listeners. That does it for another episode of The Brew Deck. We'll catch you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.